Well, it's a great joy for me to be here today. As Ryan said, we had a class together. And uh, I don't think I would have realized it unless someone had told me that we had a class together uh, years ago. Uh, and now seeing his face a year ago, uh, I said, yes, we did have a class together. And uh, like he said, we've kind of built uh, a friendship over the last year, and it's been a joy to get to know him and be encouraged by him. Uh, And it's a joy for me to get to relieve him uh, for one Lord's Day. I know uh, what a nice thing it is to have someone else come and fill the pulpit and then just sit there with your family and be able to worship and take in the word uh, without doing the work. And so I'm thankful to be able to be here. I'm thankful to be able to be here with you guys You've already encouraged me as I've been able to worship with you, and now I hope you'll be encouraged by me as I preach the Word of God to you. I will just say, because I realize I'm I'm overdressed, uh, and so this is being underdressed for me. Uh, I'm loose and free right now. I feel really good. Uh, But Ryan uh, assured me that I was overdressed and looking at everyone up here, I I guess I am. So uh, uh, just uh, don't let that be a distraction, all right? (laughs) Okay. Well, Acts chapter 2, the reason I had uh, Ryan read from Acts chapter 2, I hope will be clear in just a moment, but I want to begin there. I'm going to move rather quickly. I have 45 minutes uh, to, com- uh, to compress about four to five sermons uh, and preach to you uh, a message on the Holy Spirit and in particular, uh, His work in sanctifying uh, the people of God and producing fruit within us. And that's where we'll be headed. But the reason I had Acts 2 read is because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, after He had been crucified after he had paid for the penalty of the sins of his people, after he had done the work that the Father had given him to do in order to redeem a people for himself. He was laid in that grave and then he was raised on the third day by the power of God. Uh, He himself had authority in and of himself to lay down his life and then to take it up again. And he was raised by the power of God. He came out of the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father where having finished the work that the Father had given him, he sat down. The work was completed. And we read there in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Father gives Jesus the promise of the Holy Spirit, so that Jesus then can do something with that promised Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. A Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father, received the gift of the Spirit, and then He pours out that Spirit upon His people. What Spirit? Well, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, but the very same Spirit that Christ Himself possessed in His earthly ministry. All four of the Gospels are very clear uh, to tell us that Christ was anointed by the Spirit for the work that He had been given to do. In fact, Luke records for us in Acts chapter 10 that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And John reminds us that Jesus had the fullness of the Spirit. 
Do you realize that Jesus, in his earthly ministry, needed the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill the very mission that God had given him to fulfill? And if Jesus, in his sinless humanity, in his perfections, needed the Holy Spirit in order to fulfill the mission that God had given him, how much more so do you and I need the Holy Spirit? And so Jesus, having ascended, now sends, as it were, the very best gift, uh, the gift of heaven. He sends, as it were, himself, another helper, that is one just like him, and one who has the same mission as Jesus has, one who has the same love for his people as Jesus has. He sends his spirit. And His Spirit not only to to brood over, as it were, the people of God and to work in them and through them, but His Spirit to dwell in each individual child of God and His Spirit to dwell corporately among the people of God. And His Spirit is after something. Uh, Certainly, the Spirit of God does many things. He is the one uh, who is the great regenerator of the hearts and souls of men. He causes us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is the one who comes and He is the great truth revealer. Uh, He is the one who is not only the great truth revealer, He is the one who is the Christ revealer. He wants to make much of Jesus. He wants to glorify Jesus. Uh, He wants us to see Jesus. He is the enlightener of our hearts. He is the one that opens our spiritual eyes, as it were, to see the Savior, to love the Savior, to adore the Savior, and to worship Him. And these are just a few of the things that the Spirit does. But one of the things that the Spirit is engaged in in the lives of God's people is He is the great sanctifier. He desires to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus. He wants our character to match the character of our perfect Savior. Uh, He wants to form Christ in us so that we will love like Christ, so that we will rejoice in God the Father like Christ, uh, so that we will be faithful like Christ, so that we will exhibit the same gentleness as Christ exhibited, so that we will be kind like Christ. He wants to form Christ in us. That's part of the mission of the Spirit. And so much more could be said about that. But as we focus in on this work of the Spirit in in transforming the people of God more and more into the image of Christ, I want us to take up one text Uh, that teaches us what the Spirit does in the lives of God's people. And that is Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. And I'm going to read from verse 22 for the sake of time. And then I'll try to give a bit of context and we will dive right in. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. In the context, beginning in Galatians 5, Paul says, For freedom Christ has set you free. He set us free. Uh, from the guilt of our sin. He set us free from the bondage of our sin. He set us free from the power 
of our sin. He has set us free in order to stand in the glorious freedom of the gospel, knowing that our sins are forgiven, knowing that we have peace with the living God, uh, knowing that we enjoy an eternal life with the expectation of an eternal hope. He has set us free. Uh, But our freedom is not a freedom in order that we might do whatever we want, whenever we want, and however we want. Our freedom is, our freedom is so that we will then serve Christ, so that we will live for Him on this earth as He has called us to live. We are to walk by the Spirit, not fulfilling the desires of the flesh. That is, we are to live by God's principles and by the influence of the Spirit in our life, not living by our own principles or our own wisdom or our own notions of what is right and wrong and what is best and better. We are to take our cues from God's Word as the Spirit of God reveals that Word to us. And as He does, He sanctifies us into the likeness of His Son. We're going to dive in. And we're going to get going on an exposition, but what I want to do is just a few preliminary remarks as we do that regarding sanctification. What would you say is the primary evidence of God's Spirit working in and through a human being? What would you say is the primary evidence of God's Spirit working in and through a human being? Uh, If we survey the Bible, I think that we would find that the primary evidence, again, is that evidence of a changed heart, uh, that evidence of transforming a sinner who naturally tends to be the very opposite of what God calls him to be into a man who desires to live according to God's Word. Many times when we think about the work of the Spirit, we think about the gifts He gives, and we think about the manifestations uh, of those gifts. But one of the primary manifestations of the Spirit working in individuals and in churches is that those individuals and those churches become more like Jesus, in particular in their interpersonal relationships with one another, their families, and the world. They begin to live and to act like the Savior. I love what Packer says. He says, any mindset that treats the Spirit's gifts that is, ability and willingness to run around and do things, as more important than his fruit, that is, Christ-like character in personal life, is spiritually wrong-headed and needs correcting. When the Spirit of God gives new birth to a man and indwells that man, there will be real changes that take place. He will really and truly become more and more like the Savior. And so I want us to understand that to become more like Christ is one of the primary manifestations that the Spirit is at work. Now, a few observations about sanctification, and I'm just going to speed through these and not elaborate much, but I want us to have them as we begin to think about what the Spirit does in the hearts of God's people. The first is this. The prerequisite to a pursuit of holiness or sanctification is, in the life of the Christian is a new heart. Uh, That may seem very obvious, but you cannot pursue uh, uh, sanctification. You cannot desire to become more like Christ unless the Spirit of Christ has made you a new man in 
Christ. You have to, by faith, come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you're set on the proper path of pursuing Christ's likeness. Secondly, the proper motivation to holiness is the glory of God. The proper motivation, there's a proper motivation to pursuing Christ's likeness. Jerry Bridges, in his excellent book, The Fruitful Life, he says this, Devotion to God is the only acceptable motive for actions that are pleasing to God. What does he mean by that? He goes on and he says this, Unfortunately, too often our motives are self-centered rather than God-centered. We want to maintain our reputation before our brethren. Or we want to feel good about ourselves. Or we may even seek to live a decent moral life or to do good deeds because such an ethic has been instilled in us from childhood. But that motivation is never related to God and thus is not acceptable to Him. In other words, the only proper motivation to pursuing a life of holiness is to please God. It is God's reputation. He goes on and says it is an ungodly sort of godliness that has self at its center. Third, the pursuit of holiness demands our full cooperation and our complete dependence. It's both monergistic and synergistic. We will never be sanctified unless the Spirit of Christ does the sanctifying. But the Spirit of Christ desires, and it's designed by the Father, that we cooperate in that sanctification in order that we may become more like Christ. And so we are 100% dependent upon the Spirit to enable us to live the Christian life, but we ourselves are to seek to live it as God has called us. Fourthly, the process of sanctification is a lifelong process, and it has a timetable that is the Lord's timetable, not ours. And it is a painful and a joyful process for the Christian. It's painful because as the Lord begins to really just show us how sinful we really are, we begin to see more and more how much we need Jesus. And in one sense, that pains us because we desire to be a loving, gracious, compassionate Father as the Father in heaven is towards us. And yet at times we find ourselves yelling at our children. We find ourselves thinking that that the anger of man can accomplish the righteousness of God. And we have to be shown, no, that God's ways are far superior. And so it's painful, but it's also joyful because we actually get to see the Spirit of Christ making us more like Jesus. And so the closer we get to Jesus, the further we realize, the the more we realize how far away from Jesus and how unlike Him we really are. And yet we still see ourselves growing into His likeness. And so it's both painful and joyful. Fifthly, the the principal place of sanctification is in the heart. And don't forget that. It's in the heart. It's in the motives of the heart. Uh, Jesus wants to deal with your heart. Uh, It's easy to clean up on the outside. Jesus wants to make you new from the inside out uh, so that the very principles and motives of your heart flow naturally from what He has made you. Sixthly, to refuse to pursue holiness is to reject the work of the Spirit in your life. Jesus has given His Spirit to make you more like Himself and to say, you know what, I just, I I don't want to love like that. I don't want to be gentle like that. I don't want to be kind. I don't want to be faithful. That is to reject what the Spirit is seeking to do in your life. That is resisting Him. It's being like a child when you want to bring Him in and the child is pulling back. And so we need to realize that. 
But then seventhly, the procurement of sanctification, what was the cost of it? It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Often we talk about Jesus dying for the forgiveness of our sins, dying for our justification, but Jesus Christ also died for our sanctification. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that, 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself, that is Jesus, bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Ezekiel 36 prophesied in the Old Testament, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe. My ordinances. Jesus Christ and His death and resurrection has purchased for us our sanctification. Uh, Not only positionally, that is being set apart into Christ, but also progressively, that is being made more like Jesus. And so those are some preliminary remarks, and that brings us uh, to the text uh, here. We're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit, and before we look at that first one, love, the fruit of the Spirit, a few observations. Uh, This is a supernatural fruit. It is the Spirit's fruit. These graces are Spirit-wrought graces. They are Spirit-produced graces. This fruit is heavenly fruit. It comes from heaven. Unbelievers don't have these fruits in them. They may give a manifestation of them, but they don't have the right motive in practicing them. This is the Spirit's work. It's not a natural work. These things don't come naturally to us. How many of you uh, have had children and have, have said, you know what, I really don't need to guide them or teach them how to love, how to be kind, how to be patient, uh, how to be self-controlled. If you have those children, you, you, are, you are super blessed. Uh, but we're all born right into the world uh, with a sin nature. And, and it's not natural for us to love. It's not natural for us not to fight and to be patient with one another in kind. And so, again, these are supernatural. Uh, they come from heaven. They are given by the Spirit. Uh, these are things that the flesh, our flesh, naturally opposed to even the old man that still clings tightly to us in our redeemed state is saying no, no, no to these spirit-wrought graces. This fruit basket of graces, if you will, originates in glory. Now secondly, and this gets me to the sermon title, you're probably wondering, what is he talking about? How do you smell? Fruit smells. It has a good smell. Have you ever smelt an orange or citrusy fruit? Most people enjoy that scent. It smells pleasant. Ripe and good fruit has a good smell. Rotten and bad fruit has a bad smell. And so we'll circle around to this question, but how do you smell? Is this fruit evident in your life? And you say, well, I don't know. Especially some of you men, you're like, I always smell good. And then you ladies like, he never smells good. How do you know how you smell? Ask your spouse. Ask your children. You say, I don't want to do that. That's because you know you stink. 
Ask them, how do I smell? Do you smell love emanating from my life? The love of Christ? Do you smell gentleness all about me? Do I effuse such spirit-wrought graces in the way I interact with you and with others? And so the question as we look at the fruit of the Spirit is how do you smell? You can ask yourself that question and then you can ask one another. Ask those that know you best, those that are closest to you, those that actually know what you smell like. This fruit smells. Thirdly, this fruit nourishes. It's a communal fruit. Others benefit from this fruit. In fact, in the whole context of what Paul is after here, uh, he is talking about the community together, the Christian church gathered together, how they interact with one another. Uh, He says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another, having just reminded them that they were called to freedom, but they were not to use their freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. They're to deny the flesh and they're to live by the Spirit in their lives with one another. It's communal. It's meant to encourage. And why wouldn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who doesn't want to be around a person that smells like that. We all do. In fact, we'll see that, that Jesus in perfection is just like that. And who doesn't want to be around Jesus? This fruit nourishes, it encourages, it, it prospers, it promotes love and good deeds in the life of the people of God. And then this fruit is the whole Christ being formed in you. Again, I've I've hinted at this even in the introduction, but it's Christ being formed in you. It's the whole package. Uh, It's a heavenly arranged fruit basket. Don't think of it as, you know, I just like oranges. I just want to focus on the patient part. No, the Spirit comes and He wants to work all of these things into us. And then lastly, it's a ripening fruit. And this is such encouragement to us, (laughs) right? Because often we think, man... This fruit in me isn't where it should be. I'm not practicing it as I ought. I'm not walking by the power of the Spirit. I'm seeking to walk by the deeds of the flesh. And yet Christ is so gracious. He's so merciful. He sends His Spirit to sanctify us and His own timetable, uh, revealing to us our sin that we might repent of it and revealing to us the forgiveness of Christ so that we know that we have that forgiveness and then working in us those graces. And He does it at His own timetable, slowly but surely, as we make our way to glory. He's working on us. Does that encourage you, Christian, that Jesus is working on you? If I need anything, it's Jesus to work on me. I'm a work in progress. If you think that you are a work almost finished, then you're lying to yourself. I heard a pastor once say, I have more in common with Joseph Stalin than with Jesus Christ. And he is a man who is faithfully pursuing Jesus Christ. He wants to know Him, love Him, and grow to be like Him. And the evidence of the Spirit is in his life. But he said, I understand what it is to be a sinner. And I understand that Jesus Christ, the perfect man who walked the face of this earth, is far more glorious in all of His excellent perfections of grace and character than I could ever even attain to. But I'm striving for it. 
It's a ripening fruit, and we are works in progress. And, Je- and Jesus, through the Spirit, is making us more like Himself. All right. What is the first fruit? I would say it's the primary fruit. It's the fruit uh, that without it, none of the other fruits are really even matter. And that is love. It is love. Thayer expresses that this word conveys an affection, goodwill, love, benevolence. It's well-meaning coupled with well-doing. It's a self-sacrificial love. It's the quality of a warm regard for and interest in another. Esteem, affection, regard, love, says BDAG. It's a lexicon. God says to us that He is love. God's essence is love. That is to say that it is an essential aspect of who God is. If God is love, then God defines what love looks like. Love is the expression of faith, Paul says in Galatians 5, 6. Love is the perfect bond of unity. Colossians 3.14, beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Love is a gift of God to His people. 1 Thessalonians 4.9 says, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. Love is the greatest of the Christian graces. In fact, without love, it doesn't matter what you do. Paul says, without love, I am nothing, I have nothing, and I can do nothing. 1 Corinthians 13 spells that out for us. Uh, You can render all the service you desire. You can be the most gifted man in the church. Uh, You can give of yourself over and over and over again. And if all of that giving and all of that gifting is devoid of love, then it's worthless, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is the product of faith, faith working through love, Paul says again. Again, it is the chief grace, if you will, the leader, as it were, among leaders. It is the grace without which no gift matters. We need to be practicing love towards one another, a love towards those who are like us, love towards those who are very unlike us. First John 4.10 speaks to us of love. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearing sacrifice for our sins. What does love look like? It lays everything down in order to do another good. It is willing uh, to be, it is willing to give up and be laid down, as it were, to raise someone else up. It is an other-focused affection. It says, I will not regard myself so as to do good to you. I have a regard for another. John, John 15, 12, This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. John 14, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Uh, there's no sacrifice Too great for me to make in order to do you good, is what love says. 1 Corinthians 13 speaks to us of that love. And for the sake of time, I'm going to kind of speed through. You know that chapter well. Go read it. But Christ incarnate is love incarnate. If God is love, 
and Christ is God, and Christ comes in human flesh, then when we look at Jesus, we see a portrait of love. You want to know what love looks like? Go look at Jesus. You want to know how far your love should go? Look at how far Jesus' love went. It went to the cross for the sake of forgiveness. How much should it give? It gives everything. How tired should it get? It's relentless. It knows no sleep, as it were, in order to do another man good. What does a life of love look like? How do I know how to interact with the worst of sinners? How did Jesus interact with the worst of sinners? The ones that you may naturally say, you know what, I don't know. Can I be kind to them? Can I be merciful to them? Can I get close to them? And Jesus says, you can get close to them and you should get close to them and you ought to pity their situation. You ought to want to raise them up and help them. You ought to want to carry the gospel of, of, of the, the good news of Jesus Christ to them. How can I learn what love does when others misunderstand me? How can I learn what love does when others mistreat me and misuse me and abuse me? Go and look at the life of Jesus because His love is perfect. What does love do when people are in need? What does it do when people are in need and it's inconvenient for me? What does love do with social outcasts? What does love look like in the face of antagonistic enemies? How does love respond to people's countless questions? What does love do for the enemies of God? Does love make disciples? Does love, uh, uh, does it, does it delight in the spiritual welfare of other people? Does love care for the broken? And you can just, you can answer all of those when you go and look at Jesus and say, yes, yes, and yes, this is what love looks like. You want to see the portrait of love? Go and study Jesus Christ and say, this is what I am to look like towards others. Joy. Joy is the experience of gladness. Uh, David desires uh, that we would know that he wants God to restore him to the joy of his salvation. And brethren, there is joy in salvation. Uh, There is great joy in salvation. I think Ryan prayed regarding uh, that joy. Joy uh, is not dependent upon our circumstances. It's not dependent upon what we have or what we don't have. It's not dependent upon what we get or we don't get. Joy is, again, a heaven-wrought joy. It is given by the Spirit. It is joy in the salvation that Jesus Christ has given us. It is joy in knowing that my sins are forgiven. Sometimes people ask me, how are you doing? I said, I I couldn't be doing better. My sins are forgiven and Jesus Christ is on His throne. Yes, that has nothing to do with where I am in life and what I'm doing in life. It has everything to do with what Jesus Christ has done for me and is doing in me and will do for me. It is joy that has as its anchor the sure hope of eternity with Jesus. It is a joy uh, that I do not stand in my own righteousness, but I will stand faultless before the throne. Uh, This is the joy that is being spoken of. It is the joy that the Spirit works in us as we come to appreciate and know more and more of what Jesus Christ has done for us and what He is doing for us as a great interceder and what He will do for us when He comes to take us home. Uh, you, You say, well, my joy can fluctuate. No, your joy can't fluctuate if Jesus remains your Savior. 
uh, because your joy can remain the same. Your circumstances will move up and down, but your Savior will never change. His love for you can never grow greater because it's it's already as great as it can possibly be. It's an infinite, perfect love that never diminishes. He never looks at you and says, "Only, only if I could love you a little bit more, if you would just do a little bit more for you, then my heart would beat for you. No, he spelled out the, the terms of his love at the cross. It couldn't beat any more for us than it already does. And that brings the Christian joy. If you can take Jesus away from me, then you can take my joy away from me. If you can snatch me out of the hands of God, then you can diminish my joy. But if you can't do that, then joy is mine. And the Spirit is at work, working this joy in us. I think oftentimes... It's easy for us to think of joy not really being a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Sometimes it's easy to say, well, I'll just grind my way through life. But the Spirit says, no, I want to teach you to rejoice in what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And the Scriptures are just replete with the joy of God's people. Uh, David, uh, gladness is in his heart more than when the new wine and grain abound. And over and over again, the psalmist is expressing his deep gratitude and joy for what God has done for him. John Brown calls this joy that holy cheerfulness. And you just know, folks, that again, the Spirit has worked this. You say, how in the world can you be going through what you're going through with the real pain, the real heartache, uh, the real deep discouragement over life's circumstances, and yet still be expressing your great gratitude for what God has done for you in Christ? And it's contagious. It's just a sweet smell. You say, I want that. I need that. I desire that. And the Spirit comes and He works that joy into us. And brethren, again, you know, it's a very Christian thing to be very joyful. Uh, Sometimes I think us, uh, we men in particular, we kind of think the songs, we start singing the songs, you know, and we think, "Um, I can't really express my joy here. Someone might think I'm actually happy in Jesus. Absolutely. Get happy in Jesus. You know what, David? The most rugged, as it were, manly man, Uh, He was a captain of the army. And yet, you know what he did? When the Ark of the Covenant was being brought into the city, he's dancing for joy in the presence of God. It's okay to be joyful. In fact, it is a spirit-wrought grace to get happy before the Lord. I'm not talking about giddiness. I'm talking again about that settled joy that the Spirit works in our hearts because of what God has done for us. In Christ, There's so much I want to say about joy because I think we so easily skip over it. Uh, but even, even uh, the upright are characterized by joy. Psalm 32, 11, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming of the upright. Again, when those who appreciate what God has done for them in Christ, they begin to sing. Why not? Because the Bible says God rejoices over us. If God is rejoicing over you, isn't that cause for rejoicing today? Let's move on. Not only joy, love, joy, peace. When God comes and works in the lives of sinners... 
He brings about an everlasting peace. He reconciles us to Himself through the blood of His Son. And we have peace with God. We once were at enmity. We once were enemies. We once shook our fists at God. We once hated Him. And yet when we were such enemies and when we hated Him, He took that first step, as it were, uh, that glorious eternal step out of glory in order to make peace with us because He wanted us to experience the very joy of His peace. And those who experience that peace, that tranquility of soul, uh, that soul within, they themselves then are peacemakers. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here. Uh, You can't separate the two, but I think the emphasis as he's talking about interpersonal relationship within the Galatian church is we are peacemakers. We pursue peace with others. God is the God of peace, the Bible says, and God is the one in Romans 15 who will fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in Him. And then we are those who desire to be at peace with others. The people of God are characterized by peacemaking. Are you characterized by peacemaking? Or do you smell of peace? How about in your relationship with your spouse? It's his or her turn. To make this right? Or are you a peacemaker? Who's going to get there first? Who's going to run to to resolve the conflict? To resolve the issues? Who's who's going to be there? At at all costs, I desire, at all biblical costs as it were, I desire to be at peace with all men so as it is possible with me. That includes my spouse. That includes my children. That includes my parents. uh, That includes my neighbor. That includes the guy on the other side of the church building that I don't get along with as much. I want to be at peace. That's what the Spirit of God is working in the people of God. You know, peacemakers have given up all their own rights. Peacemakers say, I have no rights. I'm another slave. I'm another servant. And I want to do His bidding and His calling. Uh, Peacemakers are those who have been forgiven much. Those who have been forgiven much are those who are willing to forgive much. Peacemakers love much. They're those who have been loved much. In fact, if you're not very good at making peace with those you disagree with, it actually reveals not that you have an interpersonal problem, it's that you have a vertical problem. You really don't appreciate how much you've been forgiven. You really don't understand how much God has given up in order, as it were, and when I say given up, I mean His only begotten Son, in order that He might make peace with you. You take that lightly because when we begin to appreciate that, we're willing to pursue peace with other people. This is what the Spirit of God works in us. He's reconciled us to Himself in order that we might reconcile ourselves to others. That's a word that we need to hear in the day and age we live in, right? Uh, Everyone's at war. Everyone's at enmity with those that are different, whether it's political, socioeconomical, or whatever else we might say. It may even be religious. Well, they're not Baptist. And so I don't have to like them. I don't have to pursue peace with them. Brethren, there's no person on the, on the earth that you don't have to pursue peace with. God says, so as possible with you, be at peace with all men. Do what you can to pursue peace. And that's what the Spirit comes and works in. As you want to know if the Spirit is in wor- at work in your heart, are you a peacemaker? Are you a peacemaker? Peace. 
patience. Patience. Uh, this is more of, uh, we, we see patience and we begin to think, you know what, I was at the, y'all don't have this problem because you're in Graham, Texas, not the DMV. Maybe the doctor's office. And, and you're having to wait a little bit longer than normal, like six minutes instead of five. And you think, man, I'm being really patient. I haven't made a scene yet. Uh, we like to think of patience in that regard, and, and that is true. We need to be patient in those situations. But often when the Bible speaks of patience, the word really is it's long-suffering. It's having a long fuse when other people are pushing our button. It's when we're being poked at, we don't poke back. It's when we're being slapped, we turn the other cheek. Uh, it's, when, it's when we have an antagonist in our life. It's when someone else is pressing. We say, you know what? I'm not going to get my pound of flesh. And again, you just begin to see why these are, these are spirit-wrought, heaven-given graces because we're just naturally, you did that to me, but <laughs> let me show you. And, and some of us are you know, a little more reserved. Uh, we won't show them like this. We'll just kind of give them the uh, old silent treatment or we'll give them the old stare. Uh, I, I've got a condescending stare. Uh, that can make people feel very small. I'm not going to hit them, but I'm going to make them feel this small, right? Uh, Because I'm not patient. You poke me, I'm going to poke back. Because after all, the most important person in the world is me. And when you mess with the guy on the throne, you're going to experience the wrath of the king in my little kingdom, which you're meant to serve in, by the way. And yet, Jesus teaches us another way. The king himself is the servant the servant of all. There's nothing, there's no position too low. And when people mistreat him and when people poke him, he doesn't respond out of anger. He responds with patience. And how grateful we are, brethren, right? Uh, Sometimes we talk about, man, it's, it's so difficult disciplining our children over and over again. Think of the Father in heaven with you and me, right? I mean, seriously, I often think of that, how patient he is, how long-suffering. In fact, uh, God's spoken of in his long-suffering and patience towards us over and over again. How often does he say, you know what, I think they maybe should have gotten it by now. I've been working on this one issue for 25 years, and yet that's not the case. It's a kindness. It doesn't mean that he doesn't keep working. It doesn't mean that he's not engaged. This is not just lay back and be walked over, but it is I'm not going to respond in kind. I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm not going to push your button just because you pushed mine. It's a patience when we are being afflicted. And of course, when we're being persecuted, we need that patience. Patience when others are against us, when others hate us for the cause of Christ. It again is that patience. You know what? You can say what you want and you can think what you want, but you won't change my love for you and my desire to reach you with the gospel. There's no extent that I won't go to. I'm a patient man because I have been patient with patience. All right, I have to speed along because I need to finish up, and so we're going to move much more quickly. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Kindness. It's functional benevolence. That is, it's a caring heart expressed. It's the quality of being helpful or beneficial to other people. It's the desire of goodwill towards another. 
It's acting on that desire, though. It's not just, you know, I I have this kind heart, but then it's expressing that kindness. Romans 2, 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, same word that is God's kindness and tolerance and patience. Interestingly enough, patience, same word as we just studied, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. It's a God-like characteristic. Ephesians 2, 7, so that in the ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And Christ Jesus is the tangible expression of God's kindness to us. Titus 3, 4 through 7 speaks of God's kindness to us. Again, it is kindness in action. It's goodwill towards others expressed. It's seen when men think of others' interests before they consider their own. It's not a tit-for-tat attitude. Kindness is sympathetic. Kindness is the manifestation of love. Kindness is not indifferent. It does not say, I don't care. Kindness pays attention to the hurts and needs of others. It's putting yourself in the position of the person in front of you. It's walking in their shoes. And how often we need to do that, even in the relationships uh, we have with those whom we love the most. How often I need uh, I need to be sympathetic and kind and say, okay, what does my wife need in this situation? Not do I want, what do I want to give her or what do I think I need to give her, but what does she actually need? And then being wise in applying that. Kindness is expressions, actions, tangible evidences of love towards others, even when you disagree with them. What does a kind heart look like? We might say that it is like the innocence of a child who will draw or make anything to express something of how they feel towards others. Right? Sometimes uh, your child brings you this picture and you're like, I have no clue what that is. Sorry, I live with children, so all of my examples uh, have to do with kids. Uh, But you're like, I don't even understand that. And yet their, their hearts are glowing. Because they have made this masterpiece for you. And, and what are they trying to do? They, ju- they just want to please you. They just want to, they, they just want to encourage you. Uh, and and, and that's, the kind, that's a kind heart. There's a sweet innocence to it. What can I do to lift you up? What can I do to help you? What can I do uh, to better you? It is, a situ- it, 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 it is a tangible expression of a heart that desires another's good. Closely related uh, to kindness is goodness. Again, it's the interest in the welfare of others. Uh, it's genuine outward focus. Christians don't live private lives. Uh, they live lives in community. Christians don't have a poor me inward focused attitude. Goodness orients itself towards other people. It orients itself towards the physical and spiritual needs of other people. It, it's, a, it's a large-hearted, open-handed generosity towards other. Goodness isn't interested in winning an argument, but pursuing truth and a profitable path forward. Goodness aims to meet people's physical needs, carry, and thus ease people's burdens and relieve people of trouble. Goodness has the idea of benevolent generosity. Generosity with time, with resources, with energy. Goodness at a simple level is concerned with how another person's day is going. Genuinely concerned with how their day is going and what one can do uh, to better that day. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for 
good and every work of faith by his power. Uh, There's a resolve for good, a desire to actually do good to others. And Paul says, we're praying that when you have that desire and when you seek to uh, 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 apply that to others, that God blesses it. Goodness, again, is closely related to kindness. Goodness isn't afraid or turned off when a brother or sister come to you with real sin issues or struggles. Goodness doesn't recoil when it sees or hears of other sins or spiritual struggles, but rather runs to lovingly help. Uh, Goodness is ready to get messy for the sake of others. Goodness wants to see the grace of God at work in the lives of others. Have you ever kind of thought, I don't care what happens to them? That's not a good heart. That's a bad heart. A good heart that desires to do good wants to make people uh, so, so more and more like Jesus. What can I do to relieve? What can I do to help? Faithfulness. Being true to one's word. Again, we see this is a God-like characteristic. He's faithful. Uh, his love is deathless. There's nothing you can do to sever. When God says He will do something, He does it. When God says He loves, that love cannot be changed, altered, or reversed. He is faithful and true to everything He says He will do. And we too are to follow Him in that. And the Spirit comes to us and makes us people of our word. When we say we'll do something, we follow through with it. We want to do it. We're faithful faithful to our friends. We're faithful to encourage the brethren uh, to love and good deeds. We're faithful uh, to be there for them when they need us. We're faithful people as our God is faithful to us. We're faithful to cover sins. Uh, We're faithful to forgive. We're faithful to love. And brethren, I know I'm out of time. We're gentle. And we're faithful in our gentleness. Gentleness is a Christ-like characteristic. In fact, it's one of the things that Jesus tells us His heart is like. He actually says, I have a gentle heart. This is a Christ-like heart. Not only are we faithful and we can be dependent on, we're gentle. People come to us naturally because they know the sort of response they're going to get from us is not, you know what, you better find help from someone else. Or you know what, whoa, that's your problem? Or, hey, man, I don't want to get messy with that. They come to us because they recognize in us a Christ-like heart that says, come unto me. And we're always ready to point them to the cross and point them to the gentleness and kindness of Jesus. Come and let me show you His forgiveness. Come and let me assure you of that forgiveness. Come and let me show you what it looks like to walk in faith in this situation. Gentle people have people lined up for counsel. They have people lined up for encouragement. They have lots of friends because people want to be around people that are like Jesus. They have that same sort of heart. It's a non-judgmental heart. And you know, it's very interesting. Is Jesus very discerning? The most discerning. Is Jesus fully aware of your sins? The most aware of them. And yet is Jesus also very gentle with you, not willing to, to, to break the bruised reed or to put out uh, uh, the flickering light? No, he's not. And that's what a gentle heart looks like. How, how can I mend this reed? How can I fan the flame of faith and, and come to me because I'm interested in doing that for you? Husbands, I heard a good word uh, this last week or two weeks ago or something. And it said, is the sort of encouragement you're giving to your wife, that is, the sort of sanctifying instruction in order to make her like Christ, always when she's doing something she shouldn't? 
or always when you see a sin issue? Is that when you interact with your wife spiritually? Or does your wife come to you and do you interact with her in such a way that, that you effuse gentleness and you're, you're, just, you're ready to do whatever you can to, to fan the flame of faith? I'll be the first to confess. Oftentimes I'm ready, I'm ready to kind of say, hey, you know what? <laughs> Guess what? You're not doing very good in this area. Of course, I do it in a very gentle and very around, roundabout way so that she knows how spiritual I am in being so considerate for her situation. No, I mean, yeah, that's what I do. Instead of just speaking truth to her, reminding of her of how much Jesus loves her and cares for her and how much He wants, uh, he wants uh, to sanctify her and, and reminding her of the sanctification, the, the evidence of graces that are so apparent. Uh, you know, oftentimes, uh, uh, what's that phrase? You catch more, you catch flies with what? Someone say it for me. It's okay, we're interactive with honey than vinegar, right? And you help people much more uh, when you're an encourager, a Barnabas-like person that is gentle rather than coming to them uh, in a harsh disposition that's just, I can't believe, there they go again. It's that heart that it genuinely desires to better people. And then self-control. And I've gone on too long. But brethren, self-control is the denying of the flesh. It is saying yes when our flesh is saying no. It is saying no when our flesh is saying yes. It is the putting off of the deeds of the flesh. You can go right above where we just are in verses 22 and read what the deeds of the flesh are like. They're always at war with one another. There's always enmity in relationship. There's always friction and tension because it's always about me and what about what I need and what about what I want and what about the respect I deserve and the respect I or the love I want. And, and, and self-control is it doesn't matter what, it, what I feel feel like what matters is what Jesus tells me to do. And so I may feel like getting back at them right now, but no, I want to be a gentle, gracious, kind and merciful person. And so I refuse to do that. It is putting a stop to what I want when I know what I want is not pleasing to God. It's learning to say no. It's something we begin to teach our children at a very young age. Learn to say no and learn to say yes. Yes to things that you don't want to do and no to things that you want to do that you shouldn't do. That's kind of, in simple terms, that's what self-control is. And self-control, let me just give you a a few helps. Uh, Self-control is something you have to practice. Uh, Again, the Spirit wants to work self-control into you, but the Spirit very rarely works like this. Zap me, please. And then the zap comes and all of a sudden I'm the most self-controlled person. He says, I want you to practice it. And so sometimes, and my wife is probably tired of hearing this example because it's the only example I ever give. But y'all are all new, so you've never heard it. Sometimes I'll go to the grocery store and and I'm an adult so I can buy what I want at the grocery store. If I want a candy bar before 10 a.m., no one can say, you know what? You can't have that candy bar. I know it's, it's great, kids. One day you'll get there. But sometimes I'll say to myself, not because I can't buy it, I have the means to get it, I have the desire for it, but I'll just say, you know what? Just for the practice of self-control, I'm going to tell my tummy that's saying, I really want that chocolate bar. I'm going to say no. Just, Just for the sake. It's permissible. Again, to say, I'm in control. Does that make sense? Or I hate running. I hate it. It's a meaningless thing in life. I know some of you disagree. Uh, but a few years back, I said, I'm going to run. 
I'm going to start running because I've got to make myself do something that I don't want to do. You translate that into the spiritual world again and you say, listen, right now I feel like doing this. Every fiber in my being wants to give her the silent treatment and not pursue peace. And yet Jesus says, be a peacemaker. And I say, I want to live by the rule of His Word and by the power of His Spirit. And so I am going to sacrifice my flesh and my desires in order to pursue peace. And that's self-control. That's what it looks like. Brethren, I, I, I hope that we are a group of people that smell like the fruit of the Spirit. And I hope that God increasingly works that here in you at Redeemer Church in Graham so that you'll smell good to one another and be of mutual benefit to one another. And so you'll smell like Christ to the world around you as you seek to reach them with the gospel. Nothing so undercuts the gospel as saying, Jesus will make you smell good while you smell rotten. (laughs) Uh, Yes, he'll forgive you, uh, but he's not only going to forgive you, he's not only going to justify you, he's not only going to remove your guilt, but he is going to make you more like himself. Who doesn't want to be like the man described in Galatians 5.22? I want to be like that. And so one last remark. If you're not like that, and you don't know that Jesus, that the Spirit of Christ is transforming His people to look like, then there is a way for you to be transformed. There is a way for you to know how to smell good, as it were. And that way is to come to faith in Jesus Christ who laid down His life so that your sins would be forgiven and so that you would die to sin and live unto righteousness and know the wonderful work of the Spirit making you more and more like Him. You say, how do I do that? Simply by saying, Jesus, I want the forgiveness that you offer because of your death and resurrection for me. Give it to me. I'm a needy sinner. Everything described here is just the opposite of me. And so what I desire is to be that man. And Jesus will forgive. He never turns away a genuinely repentant sinner who trusts in Him. And He will begin to transform you by the power of His Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for grace through Christ. We rejoice today in the forgiveness we have received in Jesus. We rejoice that we not only have our guilt removed, not only that we have a faultless standing before the very throne of God, not only that we have the righteousness of Christ clothed upon us, but Father, also that You are at work sanctifying us and making us more and more like Jesus through the work of the Spirit. We praise You this morning that we have not only a sanctifying Spirit, but Father, that we have an interceding Lord Jesus Christ at Your right hand who is praying for us, as it were, that we would become more and more like Him and that we would be enabled by the Spirit to grow into Christ-likeness. We thank You, Father, that we have a Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, who cannot be cast off His throne, who is returning for us and who will make all wrongs right and who will comfort us eternally with the comfort that only He can give. We thank You, Father, uh, that You have given us these sweet and precious promises. We thank You that they are ours in Christ. We pray, Father, that You would work to make us smell more like Jesus. 
We desire to be like Him in our relationships with our spouses and our children, our parents. Father, we desire to be like Him in our relationship with the world and with other Christians. We desire, Father, to be like Him all the time. Oh, work in us for the glory of His name and for the good of His cause. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.